churches and many so-called Christian organizations and institutions are attempting to inculcate into believers this idea that we have to be apologetic, we have to grovel and seek approval, approbation from the world over our faith. And one of the things that I've been attempting to do throughout some of the latest things that I've had to say, articles that I've written, and we'll include that in this edition, that's what we're going to do specifically in this edition, is to give believers disciples of Christ, the tools that they need to be able to discern the subtleties, specifically to these people within the church who are attempting to convince us to grovel like snakes before the world, whom is attempting, among other things, to get us to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We'll explain more in this edition of the Absolute Truth Absolutely podcast. I'd like to welcome each and every one of you to this new edition Once again, presenting the topic, the subject matter for this episode, your servant in Jesus Christ, Gio. Now, I would like to direct the attention of the audience to an article that was published by the Gospel Coalition. Obviously, not a friend to true biblical Christianity. We've spoken about these people at length, so it shouldn't surprise us that what I'm about to read to the audience, what is forthcoming, is not biblical in nature. But that's the exercise. That is the whole point of this. You'll note that there are persons like this author, Caitlin Miller Feebles, whom, according to the website, she is on staff at the Chick-fil-A Support Center and enjoys writing on the side for ministries for desiring, like desiring God. She and her husband, Brennan, live in Nashville, Tennessee. It's these type of individuals and these types of organizations that carry this content whom are convincing, indoctrinating Christians to suddenly be ashamed of their faith and to think that they hold the moral low ground in all of these things. And this is not at all what the Bible teaches. As a matter of fact, all the opposite is true. The Bible teaches us that we not only have confidence in Jesus Christ, but that we are to confidently go into the world and preach the gospel and do so unapologetically. Recently, I was talking to a crowd, as it were, Uh, and a congregation specifically about what it means to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And among the things that we were mentioning in that presentation is this misapprehension. There is this misunderstanding where Christians have come to believe, and this also has to do with a lot of popular teaching on the subject, that if we're persecuted for our faith, and for example, a believer's life is threatened and that, let's call it nation, uh, that group that is carrying out that persecution now wants you to renounce Christ so that you may save your life. Some Christians have come to believe that that is the very essence of being ashamed of Jesus Christ, and that's not at all what the text teaches. If this were the case, then Peter, his salvation should have been forfeit after he denied Christ on three occasions. And we find many other instances of this. For example, when Paul is persecuting Christians and throwing them in jail and threatening their existences unless they renounced Jesus. Do you believe that God would suddenly cast those people out simply because they were trying to save their lives? Of course not. If you think about it on the opposite, and there are those who might think so, but on the opposite, and then why would God seek to save Paul, who was causing these people to blaspheme but not save these people whom were saved before Paul? 
It, it doesn't make any sense when you think about it philosophically. So there must be something beyond this erroneous understanding of what it means to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And one of the things that I stated in that presentation is that to be ashamed of Jesus Christ means, we looked at the definition being ashamed, and it means to have a sense of guilt, to have a compunction, as it were, over what someone has done as if they are committing acts of criminality, and now they have to feel sorry, they have to feel guilt, shame over their activity. That brings to light what Jesus talks about when he says, if anyone is ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of that person before the fathers, before the angel, before the father, before the angels. That makes more sense when you consider what the text has to say of the very thing. And this is the spirit that many so-called Christian organizations, churches, and others are attempting to put, to inculcate in Christians. An example of this is the article that I will read to the audience. And you'll note that this is something that you have probably heard from some famous pastor, from some famous talking head, whom considers himself or portrays himself to be a Christian. But in fact, as we analyze this, and I ask you to please stick with me on this because this will be a bit of a longer thread. But as we examine this biblically, you'll note that what they are actually looking to inculcate in you under the guise of being a sound biblical Christian is actually to be ashamed of Jesus Christ and his gospel. The article is titled, How Can I Respond to Coworkers Who Think Christianity is Bigoted? Once again, how do I respond when a co-worker angrily disparages Christians as hateful and bigoted? In working with unbelievers, this is what this lady is writing, in working with unbelievers and believers alike, we're called to live and labor in a manner worthy of the gospel. We should be quick to humbly confess and repent when we fall short of it. But how should we respond to co-workers who've taken offense not over our own actions, but over those of other Christians? Now, I need to pause here from the onset. You'll note that the question was slightly changed. She, It was a sleight of hand, if you'll note about it, because the original question is, how do I respond when a co-worker angrily disparages Christians as hateful and bigoted? The implication here, because this is something that I think every believer has faced in the workforce. If you're a genuine biblical believer, you will face persecution no matter where you are. Jesus said we will have affliction in this world. Not only this, Christ tells us clearly that since the world hated him, it's going to hate us as well. So it doesn't matter where you are, whether you're working in a place or not, when you identify yourself with Christ, there will be people who simply hate you for it. So the implication of this question as I'm reading it is, I'm a Christian, I've identified as a Christian, and now there are sinners that have their hostility pointed at me because I'm a believer. And you'll notice that immediately the article writer now switches that. It's a sleight of hand again where she writes, but how should we respond to co-workers who've taken offense not over our own actions, but over those of other Christians? I ask the audience, what do my actions, what do my sayings, my words have to do with what other Christians have done or don't do? Not only this, when you think about it, the premise of the question is rather flawed. If the Bible tells us that while we were in the world, we were wrong, we were without God, and therefore our judgments were flawed, why would we suddenly give the moral high ground, that's the premise, that is part of the philosophical underpinnings of this question, why would we suddenly give the higher ground to sinners in this matter? Because if sinners are inherently wrong about Christ, about his gospel, about Christianity in and of itself, why should we suddenly heed what they have to say of the matter? 
This is once again, twisted logic, and it runs against what the Bible has to say. But as I've said before, if the foundation, if the figurative foundation of an argument, that building as it were, is flawed, then it's very easy to take down that erroneous idea. So we see that from the very onset, the foundation upon which she's going to answer this question is not only flawed, I would even dare say it's malicious, and I'll explain why in a few minutes. But how should we respond to co-workers who've taken offense not over our own actions, but over those of other Christians? Number one, she advises to Listen with humility. In the face of frequent embittered accusations that all Christians are prejudiced or malignant, it may be tempting to respond with defensiveness, resentment, or even retaliation. But humility is diffusing and disarming. Even the strongest and proudest among us must be persuaded. It may be persuaded by patience and a soft tongue. And she quotes Proverbs 25, 15. Our best first step is to genuinely listen. This is more active and self-forgetful than silently crafting a rebuttal while the other person speaks. It involves praying for a tender heart that's moved with compassion over the wrongs others have experienced as we mourn with those who mourn Romans 12, 15. I have to say, folks, it's obvious that a woman wrote this. <laughs> this is very emotionless language. I know that many people will be offended by my saying so, but it's obvious that a woman wrote this. It is tinged with this type of emotionalism that is very present among circles that is heavily imbibed with women as it were as the core audience behind it. Our co-workers or others, she continues, that they know, may have been bullied, ostracized, or ridiculed. Actions neither we nor Christ would ever approve. I find this very interesting that as it pertains to signaling out of Christians, suddenly Christians are supposed to allow themselves to be vilified ostracized when we wouldn't allow it in any other instance in our lives. Someone would ask, Gio, could, could you explain yourself? Absolutely. How would you feel if your husband, your wife, respectively, your spouse, were to say, these husbands are this way because of this, that, and the other thing? You would be quite offended at your spouse, wouldn't you? Because if you're treating your spouse not in the way that the typical, to use that word, uh, husband is treating other wives or vice versa, he would say, I'm not like them and I haven't given you a reason to think that I'm like them. So why are you suddenly bunching me in with the rest of these people that you're mentioning? Besides, that sort of generalization needs to be qualified a bit more because yes, we can use generalizations in order to mention certain things, but the fact of the matter is, is that it requires a bit more detail to get to the truth of the matter. And you would be in your right if you are a well-behaved if you're a moral person in that respect in your marriage or whatever other instance, again, we're just using this as a hypothetical, as an example to prove that the premise with which she's advancing is inherently flawed and even malicious. Why? Because it bears, a, it smacks, as it were, a false testimony, which is exactly the problem here. Now, why can't Christians defend themselves from that sort of ostracization? I ask. If you as a believer are attempting to do things by the book, as it were, and the pun is intended there, if you're attempting to do things by the book and suddenly this person had, that carries hostilities against Christianity, against Christians, says, you Christians are all the same, you're well in your right to fight back against that false testimony. But in essence, she is disguising her lack of fighting against, defense against false testimony, which you're in your right to do so with this facade of humility. It is neither humble nor meek to simply stay quiet before accusations 
that are malicious, that are evil in their intents. Because let's face it, and I know that those of us that have worked and those of you that continue to work in uh, these ambiences, you know that there are people that simply for you expressing your faith are out for your neck, so to speak. And if you don't defend yourself, these people will have your jobs because they do not want to see you present. That is where this hostility leads in many instances. Are you not supposed to defend yourself suddenly? According to this article writer, I guess that's not necessarily Christian humility, what you're displaying there. I said earlier that her article reeks of malignity, and I stand behind that because this is the first example I give to you of the matter. So if you and I were to defend ourselves against these false accusations by these people that carry hostilities against Christians, suddenly we're not listening with humility and now we're at fault because we're so-called violating biblical precepts here of not responding with a soft tongue. And notice the words that she uses if you were to dare defend yourself. Defensiveness, resentment, retaliation. I had no idea that proper self-defense now can be perceived to be resentment, retaliation, and even defensiveness in a negative connotation. Again, this is offensive to me, and it goes back to what I said earlier. Many Christians nowadays, many organizations, including the Gospel Coalition, are trying to inculcate this idea in Christians that we have to be apologetic, we have to be ashamed, we have to feel guilty over our Christianity. And then we have to grovel to the sinners that are attempting to feel, have us feel guilt over this. Why? If I'm serving the true, the only God, and that very same God tells me, go confidently into the world and preach the gospel, why should I be ashamed over that? Why should I suddenly approach sinners and under the guise of meekness, under the so-called facade of humility, now I have to offer words that in essence appeases them. No, sir, this is not what the Bible teaches. Never do you see a single instance where Jesus, the disciples, because I know if I use Jesus as a prime example, there will be those who say, well, he's Jesus. Well, let's look at the disciples then. Did you ever see a single instance where the disciples sat and listened calmly to sinners whom were virulently anti-Christian and then responded to them with, as she uses these terms euphemistically, persuaded by patience and a soft tongue. For example, we find that Paul, that wasn't the advice that he was giving Titus, this young preacher, when he sent him over to Crete. As a matter of fact, he quotes one of their own prophets who said that the Cretans, and that's where we get that famous phrase in English lore, where it says, don't be a Cretan, right? Those Cretans, they're lazy bums in essence, they're gluttons, they're evil speakers. This testimony is true. And then he says, rebuke them sharply so that they would be sound in the faith. It seems to me that the Apostle Paul would run afoul of the sensibilities, the very effeminate sensibilities of Caitlin Minner Feebles and the Gospel Coalition. But you begin to see when we analyze these things biblically that, again, as I stated earlier, that's what I wish to highlight to the audience. There's this tinge, there's this undercurrent of arrogance from these people that they, they try not to portray, but there is this undercurrent of arrogance that these people put forth that undergirds their argument and also a shame, having being ashamed of the gospel. Our coworkers or others they know may have been bullied, ostracized, or ridiculed. What do I have to do with that? What do you have to do with that? If you're not doing that to other believers, then why is it that suddenly these people, the people whom are accusing you, the people that are hostile against you for your faith, why are suddenly they under the right to 
bunch you up with the rest of the other Christians that supposedly they say they've suffered at the hands of, which by the way, here's another point to all of this. What makes us, what, what should lead us to believe their testimony? I want to know. Suddenly they're absolutely trustworthy that they've had these experiences with other Christians. I've encountered many instances where these people will say that they've been bullied, ostracized, or ridiculed by Christians only to question them further on the matter with the intent to prove that what they present as these things was in fact all the opposite. It was true believers attempting to convict them of their sin, and then they classified that as somehow Christian hostility. So my point is, is that we, or or rather this lady, she is asking us to believe these people whom are bringing these scurrilous accusations against Christians based on false assumptions. I was under the impression that the biblical dictum on believing the testimony on a person had to do with if that person had witnesses, two or three, typically, that's what we find in both the Old and New Testaments. But I guess that goes by the wayside because it's inconvenient for the argument. Now, she continues on to the second point, denounce unchristlikeness. This first sentence that she is going to write in this subsection will give the appearance that now she is necessarily contradicting everything I'm saying about what she is putting forth in this article. I'll read it for you. While we might want to try to save face for our religion, Christ didn't. He freely called out beliefs and behaviors that strayed from alignment with God's word. Well, well, Gio, I guess she's on your side of the matter. Keep listening. Notice how she immediately does another sleight of hand. We can do the same offering statements such as, quote, you're right, that behavior is wrong, and I'm so sorry that happened to you. Did you notice? It had nothing to do with what I said just a minute ago, where suddenly we examine the underpinnings of why these people, the the antecedents as it were, as to why these people have these hostilities against Christianity and discovering that in many instances, that's rather false testimony against Christ, against the faith, against other believers. It has nothing to do with that. You'll note that now what she is demanding, she is asking you to do is that you were to apologize for them. Doesn't that reek of the system that we know today to be cultural Marxism, whereby, for example, you didn't own slaves, but if you're a white Christian, then you are most probably the ancestor of people who own slaves, and therefore you're as guilty as they are, even though you've never owned slaves, of being slave owners, and now you have to pay reparations, which is inherently an anti-biblical concept. Because according to New Testament standards, every single person rises or falls, as it were, if I may be allowed to use that phrase, before Christ based on their own actions, more specifically on whether or not they believed on Jesus Christ or not. This is inherently against the ethic that we find delineated in the New Testament, and notice how she craftily hides under these, I'm, I'm telling you, these people, they search for these phrases to be able to say, that's not what I said, but that's exactly what they're saying. They're Andy Stanley types, as it were. They think that they're very crafty, they're cunning in the way that they use words, but they themselves denounce what they actually believe, which also tells you something about the way that these people operate. They're not so willing to be so explicit about what they actually believe and are telling other believers to engage in because they know that if they use plain language to describe what it is that they believe, most people would reject it out of the absurdity of the thing, which is, this is what it is, it's absurd. We can do the same 
offering statements such as you're right, that behavior is wrong. Well, hold on for a second, pause. Let's examine whether or not what that Christian did to you was in fact right or wrong. And again, am I supposed to believe the person? Am I supposed to take their their testimony at face value? I don't know the person. Let's face it. When we're talking about co-workers here, many, on many instances, and this is just being blunt, this is being very honest, one another, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming, many of the people you work with, you just can't stand. And, and you don't want to have a relationship with them as it were aside, apart from what is basically a business working relationship. You can't tolerate these people. So then you're telling me that now we're supposed to take these person's testimonies at face value, the very same people whom are misjudging you and now are also ostracizing you simply because you're a believer. We're supposed to take that witness, so-called that testimony at face value, the very same person whom you have done nothing to and yet simply because you identify with Christ, now they are hostile against you? I thought that was unjust. My understanding is John, he writes in one of his short epistles, that all unrighteousness is sin. And when you misjudge another person, I thought, I was under the impression that biblically speaking, that is unrighteousness. Notice that the premise for what she is writing here is absolutely flawed. And again, as I said before, malicious. She's giving the reasoning, as it were, the benefit of the doubt to sinners instead of people from the faith of which she says she's a part. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous. And worse off, she's not even giving the benefit of the doubt to the biblical way of seeing these things, of doing these things. And I'm so, I'm so sorry that happened to you. Again, I'm not going to take that testimony at face value because we need to analyze the particulars of that instance. And once again, what does that have to do with me? Just because, and let's assume that that person may have been mistreated by Christians in the past. I'm a believer. I haven't treated you that way. Why would you assume the same about me? You see, these are the things that when upon closer examination, giving scrutiny to these arguments, they just, they fall flat on their face. She continues, our faith is built on the premise that all people and all Christians fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. This would be a good time to mention that Jesus is the only perfect human, that believing in him does not make Christians sinless, and that sanctification is a long process. Right, and, and also it would be good here to mention that sinners are probably the ultimate hypocrites in that they are calling out Christians for their hypocrisies when they themselves endorse things that they know that are inherently evil whilst oppressing, in many instances, Christians for simply trying to live out in a gospel manner. That also needs to be mentioned. No, but you can't say that because according to the gospel coalition types, you'd be driving them away. Well, I find it interesting because I find an attitude in Jesus that says, I'm going to preach the truth to you, whether you like it or not, but it's your choice to either accept what I'm telling you or to outright reject it. I mean, Jesus didn't tell us to selectively go out into the world and preach the gospel. He said, just go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature. The sin of Christians, she continues, is not a reason to disbelieve the gospel. That's true. But another reason to cling to it. Well, why didn't she just say that instead of all these other um, things, as it were, misgivings about the believer himself, herself, instead of giving the benefit of the doubt to the sinner? Number three, affirm Christ. Even as we rightly grieve and even apologize for the atrocities committed by other Christians in the name of Christ, did you see that? Did you hear it? Even as we, yes, you heard correctly, even as we rightly grieve and even apologize for the atrocities committed by other Christians in the name of Christ, why would you apologize for the atrocities that other so-called Christians have committed in the name of Christ? 
I need to ask you all that question. Why would you apologize for the atrocities committed by other Christians? Again, this is part of the cultural Marxist religion that subscribes to a group, a particular identity, and all that group either rises and falls based on that group identity. Gee, but doesn't Christianity have in particular a group identity? When we talk about Christianity, we're talking about the faith given to us by the founder of the faith, Jesus Christ. But the faith in and of itself stands because of its founder. We fall short of it. And not only that, she herself mentions that we Christians are not perfect. We're trying to achieve, as it were, Christ-likeness, but we're not perfect. So my point is, if she already established that, then why would you go on apologizing for the atrocities committed by the Christians when you yourself are not the one that committed those atrocities? Why should I apologize for the sins of another? It's almost believing, as it were, that the sins of that person now belong to me. They're subscribed to me, and there goes the individuality, as it were, of salvation under the New Testament. They're arising theologically. This is why I said earlier that the more you begin to understand the subtleties of what she's arguing, the more malicious this argument appears and is. We shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel. Well, the thing is, before she writes this, she's already inculcating that in the readers. This is the whole point of this. You should be ashamed of the gospel is what she's saying. That's in essence what she's saying. But now she's trying to cover her tracks by saying, no, no, but I wrote, we shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel. What you are asking Christians to do, what you're in essence demanding Christians to do is akin to being ashamed of the gospel. You can't have it both ways. It's typical of these types to say, well, here I have a two-sided coin, right? Well, how many sides does a coin have? But anyways, uh, I digress. They always want both sides of the coin. You can't have both sides of the coin. She continues, however, it may be distorted or manipulated for the enemy's ends. It's still the power of God for salvation to all who believe. And it's exactly what all people, even Christianity's fiercest opposers, are looking for in the end. The Christ we serve, follow, and submit to is full of grace and truth. John 1.17. His word commands us to do everything in love. 1 Corinthians 16.14. By the way, I've said this before. Any person that says that you're speaking the truth is not an act in love, is acting maliciously and acting as an agent of the world. I'll repeat that again. Any person that says to you that whenever you speak the truth that you're not doing so in love is acting as an agent of the world. Because the simple act of speaking the truth in a world that does not want to hear the truth is a loving act in and of itself. Whenever you hear, whether sinner or Christian, say, You're not doing that in love. When you're speaking the truth, chastise that person. They ought to be ashamed of themselves because just speaking the truth itself is an act of love. Otherwise, we would have to say that Jesus didn't act in love because Jesus constantly spoke the truth. I mean, he is the truth. He's the personification of the truth. But then again, if Jesus were to walk among us, these very same people would accuse Jesus of not walking in truth. So (laughs) I guess we're in good company, right? She continues, even when that love means affirming his commands, Even when, did you notice that? Notice the maliciousness of that. Even when that love means affirming his commands of righteousness and his disapproval of sins, even when, what do you mean even when? That is part of the presentation. Not even when, it's part of the presentation. I'm telling you the subtleties, the verbosity of this is offensive. It offends me. 
It offends. It ought to offend Christian sensibilities, even when that love means affirming his commands of righteousness and his disapproval of sins, and even when we know we'll be hated for his name's sake. Well, I know that comes with the territory, but I ought not be apologizing for other people's atrocities, supposedly, right? As we stated earlier, not only that, I'm not going to grovel. I'm not going to try to appease. I'm not going to try to win that person over. And let me clarify that. Win that person over simply because I I so desperately want them to be at peace with me. I don't want man's approval. Neither should you. Jesus himself, John tells us, chapter number two of his gospel, he says that he was not looking for man's approval. We should not look for men's approval. But this is what many Christians are looking for, and they disguise that under the guise of gospel centeredness. <laughs> right? She ends, as you affirm the exclusivity of Christianity, you may seem to be affirming your coworkers' suspicions of bigotry. You might consider asking her what kinds of, it's always her. Did you notice what I said earlier about it? It's a woman that's obviously writing this. Once again, here it comes forth in the language. You might consider asking her what kinds of beliefs and values she denounced, perhaps racism or ageism. Ageism? Folks, whenever a person uses this term, we might actually be speaking here about a social justice warrior. (laughs) Ageism, ageism. I would have never thought that that phrase, that idea would be coined as a thing, ageism. Almost certainly your coworker doesn't think we should be tolerant of all beliefs. She'd agree that in some instances there is one right ray. We think so too. Again, all shrouded in ambiguity, all shrouded in this, um, Colorful, clouded language, ambiguous language with intentionality, supposedly, of those things are so-called, as it were, conjoining each other. It's, it's, it's absolutely uh, ridiculous. And again, notice that she, as it were, gives the moral high ground to the very people who use these terms to try to denounce Christians. You're a bigot. You're intolerant. You're this, you're that, you're the other thing. We've already noted that these people, they use those phrases maliciously to try to shame Christians into not speaking the truth or being, as it were, living out that truth. Number four, seek common ground. We may spark empathy. There's another problem, empathy. We've spoken at length about how empathy is a sin. I'm not called, as it were, to place myself in the shoes of a sinner so as to justify their way of being. I'm called to preach to them so that they may know the truth. We may spark empathy and find common ground with our coworkers if they can see how their own belief systems have been misrepresented at times. Misrepresented? Let me ask you all a question when we're talking about misrepresenting. What is so misrepresenting of saying you're a sinner and you need Christ? What is so misrepresenting of saying if you're an atheist, you're in essence trying to keep people from the true and living God? If you're into new age, you're a pagan, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? I mean, let's face it. If there's only one way to God, if there's only one way to the Father, which Jesus says is through him exclusively, what is this of their belief systems having been misrepresented at times? She continues, ask if they've met someone with their own worldview, whether Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, agnostic, or otherwise, whom they describe as hateful and bigoted. You know, the funny thing about this is, is that it seems like the only people that can be intolerant towards Others whom can't, or rather who can't be intolerant towards other views, is Christians. That's the interesting thing about it. Hindus can say we don't tolerate anyone, anyone else's systems because it contradicts our own. 
uh, Buddhists, especially Muslims, because God knows that they're propensed to violence. Anyways, no, 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 no. The only ones that can't do that are Christians. Doesn't that say something? And doesn't it say something that Christians themselves are in essence saying, but that's right, we're the only ones who can't, as it were, be in that position where we reject the erroneous views of other people whom they describe it as hateful and bigoted. How do they reconcile this? Might they say this unkind individual is acting on misunderstood or misapplied beliefs that are still noble and rightly carried out? Really? <laughs> It'd be interesting to ask, for example, Mohammedans, if maybe they're just not acting out properly this whole thing of bashing their wives if they're not in submission. Another question for another day, right? If so, could the same be true of hurtful Christians they've interacted with in the past? Here we go again. We all acknowledge and submit ourselves to an authoritative belief system, whether Christianity, atheism, what? What? This is a Christian writing this. <laughs> we all acknowledge and submit ourselves to an authoritative belief system, whether Christianity, atheism, self-autonomy, or any other activist cause of our generation. We all believe in good and evil as defined by something or someone beyond this. We all have a theology that affects how we view and respond to ourselves and others. We're all guilty of acting in ways that contradict what we claim to be true. Here's the thing. You're giving, as it were, the benefit of the doubt to these other systems by saying that they're authoritative. I thought as believers we were supposed to confidently claim the only true belief is in Christ Jesus. But no, here we are again listening to a Christian using language that is giving the benefit of the doubt, giving, as it were, credence to ideas that inherently oppose the knowledge of Christ, which I was under the impression that Paul said that as believers, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that we were supposed to bring down those arguments that arise against the knowledge of the existence of Christ. You see, these people, the subtleties that they use, and sometimes they'll even quote Bible verses, as we stated in this article, but they run afoul of the biblical doctrine. But although they try to give the impression that they're acting, as it were, in the best interest of Christians, of Christianity, they're actually aids to our enemies. <laughs> this is interesting. Without justifying in any way, take courage in remembering this isn't specific to Christianity. Adherence to monotheism, polytheism, pantheism, and atheism alike have been guilty of hatred and bigotry. Great humanitarian atrocities have been, have been even committed in the name of science, yet we haven't discredited the entire scientific field in response. Uh, hold on one second. If COVID, for example, taught many people something is that you can't even trust the scientists or the scientisms, as it were. <laughs> Let's let's pause here for a quick second. I'm wondering if this lady works for human resources. It sounds to me like she does. It's it's amazing. The more you read this, the more in disbelief you are. But again, the Gospel Coalition isn't ashamed of putting this because they're more ashamed of the gospel than they at, than they are of let's call it of secular principles. Because as I told my wife earlier when we were talking about this uh, before I recorded this, the Gospel Coalition all it is is that it's secularism tinged as it were, whitewashed somehow with Christian language. That's all it is at the end of the day, and we're proving this by what we're reading to the audience. Unconscionable behavior may not always reflect a certain teaching, she says, but a misinterpretation of it. So I guess when Muslims, as it were, I'm using that example again, put a beating on their wives, we can say, well, I guess they're not following the Quran properly there, even though it's it's written there, right? Or for example, when, when certain uh, Hebrew Orthodox uh, they say that you Gentiles are the scourge, as it were, of humanity because the Torah uh, says so. And, and Jesus Christ, as it were, according to our book, he's burning in hell with excrement. Read it. You'll find that I did not invent that. Look it up and you'll find that I'm right. 
on the matter. Uh, I guess we're supposed to, I guess, you know what it is? We just got to give them the benefit of the doubt on the matter because it's just a misinterpretation. Someone got that wrong. Uh, no, <laughs> no, that's not the way it works. The greater question then is what our beliefs hold to be true and how they call us to live regardless of how faithfully we live in accordance. As I said before, here we have, in essence, this whole pantheist almost view of the thing. This lady says she's a believer, but the interesting thing is, is that her views on the matter of Christians in the world and having to face hostility is one that is is almost pantheist at its core. Well, Gio, but that, that isn't that some belief that God is in everything and everything is God and somehow, well, but you'll note that there is this universality tinge in it. That's what I mean by that. In other words, there's some credence to all the world religions because at the end of the day, it kind of all leads us into the same path. You know, the whole Oprah Winfrey uh, mantra and others that follow that paganist ideology. It, it, this is something akin to what she is writing here. She doesn't explicitly say so, but that's the spirit that runs through this article. So as I said before, I don't want to continue to get long-winded on the matter, but I hope that this proves to you that there are forces at work, there are people at work within the church who are attempting to get us to buy into the idea that we somehow ought to feel shame. We ought to somehow feel guilt over what we believe and that we ought to constantly apologize and grovel and appease over what we believe when that is not at all what the Bible teaches is part of the Christian character. What is in essence part of the Christian character is that we ought to live confidently in Christ with the understanding that he calls us in that confidence through Christ to preach the gospel, but also to have a proper understanding of righteousness. And that proper understanding of righteousness leads us to understand that we are all individually responsible towards Christ, towards the gospel, towards the Father, towards the Spirit, to live righteously. And understanding this, every person, again, either stands or falls based on how they live individually to Christ. And therefore, the sins of another cannot be attributed to me and my sins cannot be attributed to another. So whenever you have an individual like this trying to get you to feel shame, guilt, even though they don't use the words as we've noticed, over Christianity, it's our job to not only reject it outright, but to shame them for being ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I hope this analysis will help you. I hope this examination will help you. And I hope that you deploy this in the real world. Some of you will ask, how do I do that? Whenever you encounter this person, have a conversation with them and tell them, inform them of what the philosophy is as we've done in this edition that undergirds these arguments and show them how truly abhorrent it is and how unrighteous it is, what it is that they have adopted. Let it not be that they themselves fall victim to people like this, to organizations like this that will lead them to a place where now they feel shame and guilt over being Christians, the very thing that Jesus warned us about. Remember, and I'll end with this, Satan has many ways of trying to get you to buy into ideas. Persecution is one of them, for sure. But if you think about it, if he can get you to renounce the faith that you have embraced by trying to convince you that somehow there's something inherently wrong with it, he's one. And there are people among us whom are his workers that are attempting to get us to buy into that very idea. Be very careful with these types. Denounce them, denounce them loudly and sharply so that, as Paul says to Titus, to the Cretans, that they may be sound in faith. Thank you all for listening. I would encourage you that if you have not done so, 
that you were to subscribe to our channel on Telegram. Our user ID is ATA Truth. ATA Truth. You can also visit our website, atapodcast.org. If you have not subscribed to receive our email updates, please do so. It's free. We will not bombard your email address with spam or anything of the sort. Neither will we sell that address to third parties. It's just not our style. It would cramp our style if we were to do that. So please do that and let others know about the existence of the Absolute Truth Absolutely podcast. And if you're listening to this through the iTunes or the Apple podcast application, we would ask you that you were to give us the five-star review. That way the algorithms would pick this up and also let others know, help us let others know about the existence of this podcast and this ministry. That's all the time I have left for this edition. Thank you so much for listening. Until the next occasion that we meet, may the Lord shine his face upon you. Thank you.